You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. And it's been a, it's been a little bit... A minute, they might, as the kids say, it's been a minute since we've been in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be tonight. It's actually been a couple months, a few months maybe even. We're, um, we're going to do our best to finish it up here in the next, uh, the next couple years, this book here. And uh, I still think it's a great parallel. It's about the work of God getting done. And um, it's that single purpose of doing God's work together as a group, it's important for us. And so even more importantly than just doing God's work, though, is the idea of revival. And that really is where we're looking, or what we're looking at here in Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, we're covering the whole chapter, but it's a long, a long chapter, and we'll just read down um, through, through verse 5, and then we'll, we'll jump to the end. It says in verse 1, chapter 9, 1. Now in the, in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped their God. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani and Cadmiel and Shebaniah and Bani and Sherebiah, Bani and Chemini. And cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. And then they, they pray. And this is actually the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And just so you know, we're, gonna get, we're, gonna, we're not really going to look at the prayer itself very much. But just to give you an idea, it's about who God is, what God has done, and what God's people should do in response to those things. Who God is, what he's done, and what God's people should do in response to those things. And so look down then at the end of the chapter in verse 36. After this prayer about who God is, what he's done, and, and our response, it says in verse 36, Behold, we are, his, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins." Also, they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And what we're looking at here is really the marks of revived people and how there are some things that are laid out in this chapter that I think are absolutely important for us to know if we are seeking revival as well. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd love to experience revival. And I think it's available probably more readily than we think 
Um, but there are some marks of, of revival that maybe we don't all have. And that's what I'm going to look at tonight. Let's ask God to bless us, or bless our time. Father, we pray that you would, again, bless the reading of your word and bless our time together. We pray that you would speak to us and help us to see these things clearly in our lives and as a church. God, we want to do everything that pleases you in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If you split the book of Nehemiah, what I, the way that I think about the book of Nehemiah as I've Got, been studying through it, you might would label it this way. The first half uh, the, of uh, the, the book would be God's work needs revival. Meaning Nehemiah, obviously, just as a review, had led a group of Jews back from Babylon and he had come back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra had come back 12 years before that and had reestablished the temple worship. But the city and God's house were without walls. Therefore, they were left unprotected. It was hindered. The work of God was hindered because it needed someone to lead the work. God's work needs revival. And I think that's good for us to understand. That's what the first seven chapters are all about. It's about actually doing the work. People laboring and sweating and putting their lives on the line for God's work to be revived. But it's not just God's work that needs to be revived. There's another very important element in, in revival that we need to understand. And really it's, where, it's really where revival starts. And that it's not just God's work that needs revival. God's people need revival. See, even more importantly than the physical labor of the building uh, or the outward things that they possessed, God's people needed to be revived. They had been captives in a strange land. They were just now coming back. Uh, to Jerusalem, and they needed something new. They needed a reviving, a, a re-life, a new life is what they needed. And listen, someone could walk in tonight, and I mean, if anybody's listening on live stream and wants to do this, that's fine. If you want to walk in tonight and pay off our building, nobody would turn it down. I mean, if some billionaire, I mean, President Trump, if you're listening, I'm Anybody that wants to come, we would gladly receive their, their money, pay off the building and be happy about it. But listen, if we as, so that's God's work. That's the building. That's the physical part. Um, but if we as individuals are complacent and lifeless enough that we can't be bothered to get right with the Lord and get excited about our faith, a paid off building is just a monument. I mean, you think about it, uh, like I even said this morning, uh, we can build an impressive tower. You, somebody might say this is an impressive tower. We're talking about the Tower of Babel this morning, but it's a monument and, we, and it's beautiful. But if God's not involved in the work happening at Eastside, some, one day these bricks will lay flat. This church building, as beautiful as it is, it's temporary, and what then will we have that lasts into eternity? See, God's people need to revival. God's people need to be revived. The work, sure, the work needs to be revived. God's people need it. And the last five chapters of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah are about revived people. The last time we were in this book, we were in chapter 8, and it was about the conditions that primed the people for revival. Nehemiah had laid the groundwork for it by strengthening the people and making worship matter again and making people matter again and making spirituality matter again. Uh, and, and those mindsets, they laid the groundwork for revival. And there were other conditions in chapter 8 that we looked at the last time. And that is that revival starts with a desire. 
See, you can't make people do something they don't want to do. I mean, people, you could say, well, this is what needs to be done. This is, uh, this is the right that needs to be done, but you can't force somebody. Uh, and so I asked, then, how much do we want revival? Where's our desire for revival? That's the, the first step to revival is wanting revival. And a friend of mine, Dr. Bill Rice in, in Tennessee, he defines revival as a return to Bible truth. And, you know, you, you have to want to return to Bible truth. You have to want it more than you want a stronghold in your life. You have to want revival more than you want some sin in your life. You have to want revival um, more than you, you want a bad habit in your life or, or, or a wrong spirit in your life. You have to want to return to Bible truth more than any of those other things in your life. And listen, I'm not convinced that revival is some you know, intangible, mysterious, once-in-a-generation outpouring of the Spirit on unsuspecting people. I don't necessarily believe that's the case. I believe it comes to those who desire it enough to seek it with all their hearts. Revival starts with a desire. Revival is established on God's word. That's the other thing we looked at in, in Nehemiah. They read God's word for hours. I mean, the Watergate revival is what I call it. it. It went on for six hours. It was explained, the word was explained in length. It was then applied to their lives. And most importantly, it was responded to. All of those conditions came together at the right time. And they, and they, were, they were about to enter a time of revival a desire from the people and the entrance of God's word. Those were the essential conditions for revival. And, and I would, and it's been a couple months, I know, I'd like you to, to ask you if you get a chance to revisit that message either on the podcast or the website or on YouTube uh, because there were some important points about the conditions for revival. And I, I preached that leading up to our missions revival uh, in October, but it's been long enough that we may have obviously forgotten about some of those things and, and I also then applied it to our treatment of the church services here. We made some important applications that I think would be good to be revisited. That message, I think, was on October 4th. And then last Sunday night's message, I, I would consider that message as well essential church philosophy when it comes to church services at Eastside Baptist Church. Uh, about how convincing we are when people walk into our church building. I'd ask that you review those when you get a chance. So, okay, so the preparations for revival are done. And what happens next? Well, that leads us to chapter 9 where we are tonight. And we start to see here what happens when people are revived. Or, or what it looks like, the marks of revival. And I, just to give you background, this takes place just a few days after the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 8. And the initial feast was joyful. There are some feasts... In the Old Testament, well, for, the, for God's people, some feasts were joyful, some feasts were somber. There was a difference. Some were celebratory and some were very solemn. And different Old Testament feasts served different purposes. And this one that we have in chapter 9, this is a solemn feast because it's focused on their sin. Look at verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now on the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. So besides fasting, so fasting indicates that they were, they were seeking God in a special way. Fasting is when you give something up so that your focus can be on seeking God. And that's, that's how this starts. And then after fasting, there were two signs of, 
of how this was focused on their sin, how they were mourning for their sin. Uh, it says, well, the first is that they were wearing sackcloth or sackclothes, and the second is that there was earth on their heads. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, sackcloth was a garment is made of coarse goat skin. It was not comfortable to wear. Um, it, I, it kind of, I think of it, I mean, much worse than this, but if you ever get a haircut and you've got hair around your collar, isn't just the worst thing? Okay, there are, that's the first world problems, okay. <laughs> Drives me crazy. Well, can you imagine then wearing a, a robe made of coarse goat's hair? That's what they were wearing, and they were doing it to afflict themselves on purpose. Uh, it, was, it was a sign of mourning for their sins and mourning for their past uh, mistakes and behavior. Then not only that, it says there was earth on their head. They would throw dust and, and ashes and dirt on their head. It was a sign of sorrow. It's a sign of humility. They were making their mourning over sin obvious. They wanted God to know this was serious business to them. Look what else they do in verse 2. It says, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. The second thing they do is they separate from those that weren't of, of pure Jewish blood. And it's not just a racial issue. This was a religious issue. When they were taken captive in Babylon, the standard of separation became very convoluted. The lines between God's people and everybody else were not as clear. Uh, but the purity of their Jewish bloodline, it was important to God. And they needed to make that distinction once again. So they separate themselves from the world. They're trying to obey in every single area. It's something we could learn from. You know, we say that we have full surrender, but if there's even one corner of your house that you don't allow God to inspect, it's not full surrender. That's what they're doing here. They're separating themselves from all the strangers. And then look at what happens as a result of their fasting and the sackcloth and their, and their separation. These are, this is where we get into the marks of revived people. Look at verse 3. And they stood up in their place. No, at the end of verse 2, let me say, let me start there. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. See, once again, we see this is a long service. Um... They were willing to spend serious amounts of time in God's word. Folks, when we do business with God, there's, there's no length we shouldn't be willing to go to get right with God. And, and these folks, it says that for a fourth part of the day, and the Jewish day would have been considered 12 hours. So listen, what they did for, for three straight hours, they, they read the book of the law. Three hours. And then for the next three hours, it says they confessed... And they worshipped. So for three hours they read the book. For three hours they confess their sins and they worship. Now for three hours of confessing, I mean that's, that may have been a lot to confess. Uh, but there was an openness about sin. And I think it's healthy. See, we get a little too protected about our failures. And I'm not, and I'm not trying to say that if you come from a past that you should glorify the past. You shouldn't. I'm not saying that you should let everybody know with every conversation about all the imperfections in your past and almost in a braggadocious way. I'm not saying that. We're, but we're all humans and we all have imperfections. 
But you know, sometimes you walk into the average American church on a Sunday morning and you wouldn't know anybody has imperfections. You walk in and and people look the part and they act the part and they say the right things and they know how how to behave in church. They've been there long enough. But I just want to remind you of something. James 5.16 says, confess your faults one to another. And listen, the only one that can forgive is God. We do not believe that a priest forgives. You don't confess to anybody else in order to have forgiveness. He alone has the ability and authority to forgive. But a church family seeking revival should make things right with each other too. They were confessing sins, and it doesn't just say they were just confessing this, their sins to God. Um, I believe that, that there was confession p- perhaps with each other. And I believe the primary, and I'm going to say this um, because I believe it, but say it because I think we need it. I believe the primary hindrance to revival is not that people don't want to get right with God, but they don't want to humble themselves to make things right with each other. And, and there's a, I mean, we could look at a lot of scriptures tonight about making things right with each other. You can make things right with God all you want to, but if you don't make things right with each other, there's not real confession. We should be open with each other, willing to go to each other in a, an environment of openness is healthy. And by that, by the way, I don't mean that you go and let everyone else know what wrong they've done. And that you're like, oh, an environment of openness. Okay, I'm taking lots of notes now because this person needs to fix that in their life and this person needs to fix that. No, that's not the point that I'm making tonight. I mean, if you have something in your heart and that you've done to somebody else, if there's, if there's any ought between you and a brother, it says confess your faults one to another. I mean, is there something between you and somebody else that you need to make right? Because that's a, a mark of a revived church. A revived church isn't above admitting that there's sin and they need to get things right. That's the church family. You know, you think about your family and I mean, in our family and we deal with a lot of things with each other that aren't right. It doesn't, it doesn't make us not family, but time, there are times where you have to deal with things in an open way as a family. And listen, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that we're going to put each other on trial here. I'm saying that we need to get above, we need to get below the pride in our hearts and be willing to admit when we're wrong with each other. That's a mark of a revived church is that we're not above admitting when we're wrong. If you've done something that may have been an offense, take the initiative. I'd like to go into that more. I'll just say it this way. I think we could use some humility with each other. You know, I, I think I, I get concerned if I, when I hear rumblings about conflicts between members that may or may not be resolved. I get concerned that there are conflicts among members. You know, I'm not sure at what point that environment became the norm. But it shouldn't be the norm. It shouldn't be the norm that, that, that as a church family, that, what conflicts, um, that conflicts define us. And I'm not even saying I hear that it happens a lot. But, but at what point do we, with grace and Christ-likeness, deal with each other in a different way? 
We've got to be careful not to be defined by that. I understand conflict, and we're all human, and you may have an issue with how something is done, and you may have an issue with me, and you may have an issue with what someone says or when somebody drops the ball. But listen, no humility and no resolution. That will keep revival out of Eastside Baptist Church. A return to Bible truth means a return to openness with each other. Confess your faults. Worship is also a return to worship. Worship is something that's been on my heart a lot lately. I did a Sunday school series that I went through in the sanctuary class. And the most biblical form of worship is to bow. Modern church culture paints worship in every sense except bowing. If I, was, if, you were to, if I was to say, okay, what do you think the modern church culture would define as bowing? What's the posture? You would say this. That's modern worship. But did you know that the Bible definition for worship is actually this right here? That's the Bible definition of worship. It's to bow in order to express the worth of somebody else. So I'm, I ask, where's the worship then in most church services these days? Where's the bowing? Where's the physical posture that points to humility? And before you say, well, worship is private for me. I, I mean, I understand. I, I think there ought to be private worship. I think you ought to worship in the privacy of your home and uh, wherever it is that you spend time with the Lord, you ought to just at times spend, just, just talk to the Lord about how great he is. Not ask him for anything. Just clear off a spot. And if you'll read this prayer right here, you could even start with this prayer and read this prayer. And it'd be a great prayer of worship because they spend lots of time just pointing out all that God is. And before you say, well, worship's private for me, I just want to point out that it's not private right here. This is a corporate act of worship. God doesn't desire worship to only be private. I understand not feeling comfortable with worship uh, because this is not something we're used to in our culture. You know, we don't bow to each other. And some of you have, have experience in Eastern cultures, and that's much more common in other places. In America, we don't bow to each other. We shake each other's hands. So bowing is an uncomfortable, maybe even an awkward posture for us. Uh, I mean, but if you were a Jew in Nehemiah chapter 9, and everyone else bowed, you would not have remained standing. You would have bowed right along with everybody else, corporate worship in a public setting. It's a natural way to express God's worth to him. And I just want to plant the seeds because at some point, don't be surprised if we as a church say this is shocking and scandalous. No, as a church, there may be a time where we come together on a Sunday morning perhaps and we have a time of public worship as a church family. We're on our knees before God. Uh, we're not asking for anything. We're not, we're not complaining or you know, laying burdens at his feet. We are simply, um, we are simply rehearsing or, or going through the things that he is and the characteristics that he has and all the blessings that he has given us. And don't be surprised if that happens. And before you think, well, it sounds awkward and odd, I want to make sure that our thinking is shaped not by the culture, but by the Bible. Because worship is in the Bible. We've got to make sure that we're not living shaped based on our culture. And, and that's what's happening. These are marks of a revival. But I just want you to notice the order of things. It starts with God's word. And that leads to confession and worship. 
And by the end of it, it also leads to commitment. They say, behold, we're thy servants. And this is a great picture of a church service done right. And you say, well, it's not a church service. I know, I know it's not a church service, but we don't have an order of service given to us in God's word to let us know how we're supposed to do things. And, but, but in my mind, if, if in the Old Testament they're doing things in this order, then I have something to learn from that. And, and it actually, I come away with confidence in how we operate in our services because God's word should be the focal point of every service. That's what I get from here. I mean, they read God's word for three hours. And in the, in the chapter before, they read it again for hours. And as, so there may be some services that we do things differently but it's my intention that every service includes a focus on Scripture, specifically the preaching of Scripture. And as God's word is opened and expounded or explained, it impacts the hearers to the point that their response is confession and worship and commitment. I, I, this isn't about the first half of the service, by the way. Uh, and I personally view the first half of the service, the music service, as being time for the Lord. You know, we express our praise and our gratitude to him through song. We lift up our voices and hearts together and praise him. And, and you know he has to enjoy that so much. I was thinking about that this morning as we sang, It Is Well With My Soul. And, and it was obvious that people were tuned in and excited about the song and, and paying attention and singing it to the Lord. As long as our hearts and minds are engaged, I think God must anticipate the first half of a service in a local New Testament church. But this order relates more to the second half of the service, the preaching. And in that part of the service, the word of God is opened and read and explained. And as it is, the scripture does its work in us. And the result, again, the result is three hours of confession, three hours of worship. Then they have a long prayer and then they have a time of commitment. They actually sign a covenant to God. They make an agreement or a promise with God. And I think that ordering is evident in this long prayer. And again, I'm not going to read it all. Maybe you should take some time at some point to read it. It's just for time's sake. It's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. Let me give you just an idea of what the prayer is about. The primary subject, it's about God. And I just want to point out when we pray, uh, take note of your prayers. And make sure that your prayers aren't self-focused. Because we get to the place, I believe, a lot where we pray and the whole time it's all about what I need and can you give me this and you can provide that. And, and we ought to just take some time in our prayer and just simply acknowledge who God is. The Levites in verse 5, they, they tell the people to, they say, stand up, bless the Lord your God forever and blessed be thy glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And look, they're praying to him, thou even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens. With all their hosts, the earth and all the all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship him. Thou art the Lord God of the Lord, Lord the God, who did choose Abram and brought him as him forth out of the earth, the Chaldees, and gave him, gavest him the name of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites. And do you see they're not they're not asking for anything yet. They're saying, you're the God that made everything. We stand up and bless you. And look, at we're just rehearsing all the things that you, that not just who you are, but all the things then what, you, uh, what you've done. You, you called Abraham out, out of the earth of the Chaldees. You, you made a covenant or a promise with him. And you, then they talk about Egypt. 
in verse 9, and did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, heard us their cry by the Red Sea, show us signs and wonders upon Pharaoh. They're rehearsing all that God has done. And I would say, what a great way to pray. You start by talking about who God is for as long as you want to. And then you go to some time of uh, talking about his blessings and saying, God, you did this in my life. And you did that in my life. And you've done all of these things. And I look back on my life and, and all the blessings that you've given me. And God, thank you for this and thank you for that. That's what they're doing. They haven't even asked for anything yet. You say, even when we, God, even when I failed you, you, you were faithful and you restored me every time. And I'm grateful for it. And then they come down and they, can, they, they talk about their fathers and how their fathers have sinned and, and they've rebelled and yet God still remained faithful. And again, I just want to notice who God is and what God has done. And finally then what God's people must do in response to those things. Look down at verse 32. It says, now therefore, our God. So again, who God is and what God has done. And now you have a therefore. Now therefore, our God, the great the mighty and the terrible God who keep his covenant and mercy. Let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us. And I think that's an interesting phrase right there. They're, they're basically what they're saying is don't, don't let all of the trouble that, 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 you, that has come to us seem little, God. We don't want to miss all that you've been trying to do with all the hardships that we've gone through, God. We don't want to miss that. In other words, may all the judgment you've brought upon us have the effect that it should. We've been wrong. Uh, we've, we've messed up. We've, we've been wicked. And, and so here's what God's people must do in revival. For all the mercy and long-suffering and blessings, they come and they say, because you've been faithful, and even when we sin, you've forgiven us. He, they, then they come and they say, so because of all that, verse 38, we, we make a, a sure covenant. And rewrite it. And our princes, Levites, and priests, they seal unto it. And that's the idea is that who God is and what God has done. And yet, God, yes, we know we have failed you so often. And yet, your judgment has been evident. And we don't want that judgment to go to waste. So, God, we confess our sins and we come and we want to make a covenant with you. We make a commitment to you. Does this sound like a preaching service to you? That you hear the truth and you respond with confession and worship and you make a commitment. And I know it's a lot to take in, but here's the idea. When you focus on who God is compared to who you are, the natural response is confession, worship, and commitment. See, the differences between us and God, it should make a difference in how we approach God. When you recognize how faithful he's been, you should want to worship when you recognize that his judgments for sin are always appropriate, you should desire to confess. When you acknowledge his mercy and forgiveness, the least you can do is make a commitment. Because he's been faithful to you, God, I'm going to be faithful to you. You know what's happening? People are getting right with God. They're getting back to where they're supposed to be. They're experiencing revival. They're getting close to God again. And a clear view of God has brought them back. So how do we get there? Well, as I see it, there are six clear factors in getting right with God, and I'm going to list these. The first that you see all the way back in verse 1 is a self-humbling. A self-humbling. They were fasting, they had sackcloth, they were, had ashes. They were humbling themselves. And I think that's key in this process. 
Second, you have separation. They took steps away from the strangers and the worldliness. Third, you have scripture. Lots of reading. Lots of reading. Three hours. We could try it sometime. They had confession or getting things right. They had worship, which is expressing God's worth. And then they have a commitment, which is making a decision for the Lord. So again, you see self-humbling, separation, scripture, confession, worship, and commitment. And all of these factors are important and necessary. So that's just what caused me to ask the question then. So why don't we have what, at east side sometimes, what we see right here in Nehemiah 9? Is the problem God's word? No, obviously not. It's perfect. It's everything we need it to be. Is the problem preaching? Yes. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying it's all it could be. I readily admit that. But all that we're told here is that they opened God's word and read it for three hours. So I don't know that it's just the the fault of the preaching. um, Because if all I did was stand up and open God's word, that should be enough for God's people to be revived. So it's not God's word and it's not the preaching. Is it the songs we use? Well, there's a lot of truth in our hymns. And they may not be everything, everyone's favorite style, but they certainly convey great thoughts about God, which is my first qualification for choosing a song to do at Eastside. It needs to convey a great thought about God. It doesn't need to be trite. It doesn't need to be down, down here. I mean, it can be down here in the language, but it needs to convey a truth about God that's meaningful. And you can't blame the songs. And I believe we don't see more revival or returning to the Bible truth because we tend to skip the steps at the beginning of this process. Notice again, the process started with fasting, self-humbling, and separation. Fasting means that you come in seeking the Lord. That, that means that we come prepared already for the Lord. Uh, it also tells us that there should be a willful self-humbling before we ever come together. They came fasting, they came humble, they came separated. There should be a deliberate separation from the world before we meet as a congregation. And listen, and I'm not trying to dump it all on you, but you have a lot of responsibility in this. I just wonder if the truth of God's word doesn't have the effect it should because God's people aren't coming prepared to receive God's word. You know, we enter this place at times, we come and we're not really seeking God. I'm not, this is an indictment on you. I'm just talking about human nature. There are times that we just come to church because we come to church. And there's not a fasting or a seeking God. And and we haven't previously, before we walked in the doors, humbled ourselves before the Lord. We, we don't take the time to give him permission to work. We spend a week being influenced, and, and whether willfully or not, it, wherever you work and the people you're around, you spend a week being influenced by things of the world and expect to walk into church and turn on a spiritual switch and everything's just like that. Listen, I've worked in the world before. I know how it is. It's not that simple. You don't just walk in and turn on the switch. And what I'm saying is there needs to be some preparation for a church service before you come to the church service. 
And I believe it's possible to miss what God wants to do because we don't seek God with willful self-humbling or separation before the service ever begins. And I wonder how much work God has had to leave on the table because we didn't come prepared. And you say, well, that's your job, pastor. You're supposed to do it. I don't see that here. It's personal responsibility for you to come seeking God and for you to come humbled, self-humbled, and for you to come separated on your own. It's not my, I mean, we don't have a water hose washing people off before they come in the doors. That's your job, your responsibility to do it before you ever come in and to remind you about last week. We certainly won't convince anybody about our sincerity if for the first half of the service, we're just trying to get back into the right frame of mind. You know, listen, that song service is to, is, it, part of the purpose is to convince the, the guests, the people around us. And if the whole time you're just getting your mind right and your heart right and you're working through that, we're not thinking about anybody else in that process. We're just trying to get right ourselves. But let's think about all the times of convincing I've missed. Because the song service was spent on me instead of on him. And I'm not convincing anybody if I come in and I'm not seeking God and I'm not humble and I haven't separated myself in my heart from the worldly influences of the weak, I'm not having any effect on anybody else. If God's work isn't taking effect, it's not the fault of God's word. It's not a limitation of his ability to work through it. It's likely that we haven't confessed and worshiped and committed because we haven't self-humbled and separated. Because we haven't come seeking and I say this to you this way, if you want God's word to affect you in a meaningful way, you have to pro- approach it in a meaningful way. If you want God's word to affect you in a meaningful way, you have to approach it in a meaningful way. You get out of it what you put into it. And I, listen, I know I'm not, I, you say, well, I have this certain preaching style, that's what I like, or this certain preacher... You know, it's just hard for, no, listen, I'm, that's, I, I'm not using any excuses for myself. I'm simply saying that God has you here at Eastside Baptist Church for a reason. He has me here for a reason. He knew this would be the arrangement. And so then you have to make some adjustments to, to start getting something out of it. And it's like, I mean, I know I could be the reason that it's not effective. But, but if I, I'm just going to do what I can do to make sure that doesn't happen. You do what you do. Make sure to make sure it doesn't happen in your life. You get out of it what you put into it. And if you will come with meaningful preparation before the service ever begins, then you'll get something meaningful out of it. If you prepare to meet with God, he responds by working in you. The level of revival is directly connected to our level of preparation. When's the last time you prepared for a church service? I mean, before you walked into the service. And that's one reason I feel, uh, I think it's faulty to say that the song service is meant to prepare us for the preaching. Now, do I think that can happen? Absolutely. And I love it when it does. But the song service is for God, not us. And I know that's opposite maybe of what you've always thought. And I'm not saying it doesn't prepare our hearts. I am saying that it's for God and not us, which is a much higher view, actually, of the song service than just saying, well, it's for me. The song service is for God, and if I'm prepared before I ever come, I can make sure it stays for him.
Because when I walk in, it's all about him and my mind is on him. And that the process of preparation is taking place before I ever step through the door. I mean, we don't want to miss it altogether because our minds are elsewhere. So what's the application? Well, humble yourselves before you ever walk in the doors. Take some time. Uh, examine yourself before you sing the first note. Hey, do, it, do it before you come. Uh, spend time in prayer before you get in your car or maybe in your car on the way. Separate yourself from influences that don't enhance God's working in your life. Engage your mind. When you get here, engage your mind as deliberately as you can. See, here's the thing. There's plenty of truth in the songs. There's plenty of truth in the scriptures. But if we just go through the motions without thinking, we'll never truly see the difference between us and the Lord. And therefore, we'll never confess. And we won't worship. And we certainly won't commit. Because we haven't seen the difference. The Father seeks those to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that means worship in a sincere response to truth it's a response to truth which means our minds should be involved jesus christ said love the lord thy god with all thy heart and soul and what else did he say and mind so loving him is based on what we know of him and if we don't engage our minds then we're not loving him like we're supposed to and if we open those the hymns and and we sing a hymn like we sang tonight. You know, if you're just going through the motions and not actually thinking about it, um, your mind is not engaged. And if your mind is not engaged, you cannot worship as you ought to. He says, with all of our minds. We're missing the, this opportunity because we don't engage. And listen, I am not throwing, I'm not casting stones. I could ask you, how long have you been in church? And we'd have... Some raise their hand for 50, 60, 70, 80 years maybe. I mean, we've all been in it for a long time. But I don't want to be in it in something this important and not have it be meaningful. As we self-humble and separate, the word takes effect. And then we find ourselves confessing and worshiping and committing, making decisions. And you know what this is? It's revival. It's a true return to Bible truth. That's all it is. And I read this story last time, but I want to say it again. A Lutheran bishop, he visited a church and saw a big red and, and orange sign and a banner. And it had words, oh, come Holy Spirit, hallelujah. And it had a picture of flames underneath it. You know, we want revival is the idea. And it's printed under a picture of fire, you know, those burning but the bishop couldn't concentrate on the sign, on the banner, because the sign directly underneath it said fire extinguisher. Bad placement, by the way. And you know, and I think it's funny, but we all have something that prevents revival in our lives. Every one of us has a fire extinguisher that, that, we, need to, that we need to identify. Is it a lack of preparation to meet with God? I mean, when's the last time you did that? I mean, before you walked in the door. I mean, I'm, some of us are just, just trying to get our nap hair to lay down before we walk in the door. And that's, a, that's tough in itself. I understand. But maybe that's our fire extinguisher. Maybe revival hasn't come 
to the members of Eastside because we don't come prepared. Uh, Do you come seeking God? Or do you come because, well, if I don't come, then somebody's going to ask me why I wasn't there. I mean, now listen, accountability is a good thing. But if you never go from, well, I don't want to be asked why I wasn't there to, I want to come seeking God, then there's an issue there. Maybe your fire extinguisher is that a church service has simply become a habit and you don't come seeking. Is there separation from the world beforehand? I mean, listen, if, I don't know what music is playing in your car right now, um, but if you, if you get to the parking lot and turn it off and then walk in the doors, well, no wonder. You know, be mindful because there's a lot of music out there that, that doesn't help our spiritual lives. I'll say it that way. And if we're walking in and we're spending the first 15 minutes just trying to get re-situated in our minds from the influences in our lives, then we're going to miss the whole first 15, 20 minutes of the service. And no wonder the song service doesn't mean much to us. Are you in the habit of tuning out and not considering the truth? Listen, don't do it for my sake. It's not about respecting my time, although I have lots of time in in, in most of the messages that I preach. But I'm not asking you to, to give attention to it just for my sake. I'm asking you to give attention to it so that this exercise in religion is not just mindless habit for you. Because I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, that's a pretty miserable place to be where you're just going through the motions and you don't feel anything. So not for my sake, but for your sake, would you consider spending time in preparation for the service before you ever get here? Confessing your sin, seeking the Lord, humbling yourself. And if we all did it, we might see a change in the way that our services are conducted. And we might be more convincing to the guests that come in and they're trying to figure out, well, what's an independent Baptist all about? And we might make a difference, not just in, in us, but in the people that come and visit. We might be convincing, which would help us to fulfill another one of our purposes as a New Testament church. To be convincing to the guests that come in that aren't quite sure what to think of it all. I don't want you to go through the motions your whole life. And here's why. Because the Pharisees did that. And they received greater judgment from Jesus Christ than the publicans and sinners. And it was all because they were going through the motions. He said, let's not go through the motions. Let's come seeking, self-humbling, separated. And when the word is open, let it have its effect of causing us to confess our sins, worship the Lord in sincerity, and make some commitments to him. That's the process for revival. It's not some crazy, strange, ethereal thing that comes down. No, it's actually very practical. So I'm asking you tonight, what's your fire extinguisher? What's keeping you from experiencing the return to Bible truth that, that God wants you to experience? Every, let's stand together. Every head bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to encourage you tonight to, why don't you make a decision to, to prepare for church before you come to church? Make some change in your pre-church process. Make some decision tonight that would change the way that you approach our church services. And again, not for my sake, but because I want you to live the spiritual life of fulfillment that God wants you to live.
What's your fire extinguisher? What's preventing revival in your life tonight? Maybe it's time to do business with the Lord. Father, we come and humble ourselves and we ask that you would do work in us. God, maybe somebody here tonight needs to confess a fault one to another, Lord, and be open about something that is preventing or hindering a relationship. Maybe it's somebody that has worldly influences during the week and it's affecting how much you can work in them. Maybe it's somebody that's not um, seeking you. They're just coming out of habit. Maybe it's somebody that, that isn't engaging their minds. Whatever it is, God, we're asking that you would help us to, get, to lay the fire extinguishers down so that we can experience true revival. God, however you want to work tonight, pray that you will in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.